Hey, how are we doing? Um, we have been looking at some different topics. Uh, our whole goal is to say, here's some topics that we want to shine Scripture into them to find out what God says about them. So you can look at culture. Um, it has a certain opinion. You can look at your in-laws. They'll have an opinion. We want God's opinion. All right? So that's kind of what we've been doing. We've worked through some, some sticky ones to date. Uh, maybe the most sticky one of all, okay? It's remarriage. Like, okay, what does that mean? Um, The text I want us to turn to is in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, I'm not going to be talking about funny stories about my kids. Uh, It's kind of a, uh, there's a lot that we have to try to work through, okay? So just I'm warning you, you're going to have to pay attention. We're going to try to hit the major topics, major texts that deal with divorce, remarriage, all that kind of stuff. All right? So on Wednesday, we've been teaching through Matthew. Brilliant gospel. Come out 7 o'clock right here Wednesday night. In that reading through, I came on Matthew 19 and just said, that's so good. This is where to go when you want to talk about divorce and remarriage. So Matthew 19, verse 1. Once you've turned to Matthew 19, guess what you get to do today? Stand up as we give reverence to the very Word of God. Verse 1, now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother? And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And so he said, verse 8, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whosoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. I love verse 10. (laughs) But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have, been, who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive, receive it. So, Father, I pray that we are able to receive the biblical instruction on divorce and remarriage and sticky issues. So would you give us hearts 
and ears to hear. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Jesus hits on some light topics here, right? Marriage, divorce, adultery, even gender issues. Like down in verse 12, Jesus says this, you know what? Some kids are born eunuchs. You know what he's saying? We live in a broken, fallen world, and sometimes kids are born broken. So if you don't know this, one in 2,000 kids, babies are born, either they're called intersect, intersex or with ambiguous genitalia. And at that point, parents have to make a call, very hard call. So Jesus, is, he's just admitting it. He's not glossing over it. I think sometimes as believers, we try to gloss over it. We try to make it binary. Hey, it's just this and this, black and white. No way. Life is much more complicated than that. So Jesus just admits it. Hey, we live in a broken, fallen world, and sometimes things happen. All right? So Jesus hits some just radical topics here. So here's what has happened. Just to fill you in, Jesus has been kind of ministering in the north part of Israel. He decides that it's time to head to Jerusalem. It's the last walk of Jesus. He's going down to be crucified. So he's on a road trip with his disciples. People are gathering to him, listening to him. Then all of a sudden, this group called the Pharisees, who they've had some clashes, they show up and they say, hey, is it okay to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, this was the hot button topic of the time, okay? It was it. It'd be like today talking about Donald Trump, or here in Grants Pass, talking about medical marijuana, right? Or should we pay taxes so we can have police? Just those kind of issues that divide and cause people like to be, mm, have angst in them. So that's this topic. When they throw it out, what would have happened to everyone around? They would have stopped and be like, what is Jesus going to say? Whoa. They just threw out the big topic. What will Jesus say? And what we're going to see is this. There's two divergent perspectives. The Pharisees have one, and their perspective is based on the law. Do you know what the law is? Okay, in January, if you started reading through the Bible, right when you hit the law, you stop. That's the law. You're like, what in the world are all these rules for? Like, I can't figure them out. Like, don't see a goat in its mother's milk. Like, what in the world? I don't care about that. That's where you quit, okay? So the law, they based their opinion on The Ten Commandments, and then built out of the Ten Commandments, if you read through, there are 603 more commandments, but the majority of those commandments are actually relating back to the Ten Commandments because you see this cycle. Commands are given, they're broken. More commands are given, they're broken. Just read the first five books of the Bible. That's what happens every time. Broken, more, broken, more. Okay, so they're kind of built out of, okay, you've broken those commands, so let's give you some more. So it's just, that's that section. So the Pharisees are saying, this is what we base things on. Jesus comes from a very different perspective, and we'll see it in a second. So here's what we're going to do today. We're just going to look at this topic. We're going to look at the Pharisees' perspective. We're going to look at Jesus' perspective, and then we're going to kind of sum up where we're at as a church and how to deal with it. When it comes to remarriage, like what are Christians allowed to do? Informed by Scripture. Okay, you ready? Because it's going to be a lot. All right, so the Pharisees, they went to the law. There are only two laws out of 613 that deal with divorce. We'll look at them both. The first 
Flip in your Bibles, Exodus 21. I'm going to have to unpack this one a bit because it's hard. It's just a hard one. Man, it's just that simple. So, I'll start in verse 9. Okay, this is a dad. If the dad, father, designates her, it's a girl, for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he, this is the son, takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Okay, let me clarify just one broad thing. When you read the law, these 613 rules, here's what has happened. God has rescued his people out of Egypt. They were in Egypt for 400 years. All right? So he brings them out of Egypt, and he wants them to, to be a light, a nation that looks different, that can declare to all the other nations, here's what happens when you follow Yahweh. Here's what it looks like. Here's the blessings. They're to be that kind of a nation. All right? So he's, he's bringing them out of Egypt, but they were in Egypt a long time. 400 years. And in Egypt, guess what had happened to them? They picked up some bad habits, right? Kind of like sometimes where you send your kids to certain places and they become sinners because of that little kid named Johnny, right? If it wasn't for Johnny, my kid would be an angel, but Johnny corrupted him. Well, not really. Um, Kids are born sinners, all right? No doubt about that. Now, Johnny can teach them new techniques, no doubt about it. So you got to be careful because new techniques can be taught, but they're born sinners. What had happened with Egypt was this. In Egypt, Israel had gone down there, learned a bunch of new techniques to sin. Not God's design, not what God wants. And so what you have in the Torah, in the law, is God dealing with very hard situations that had already happened. Okay, a guy getting married twice. That's not God's design. That's not God's plan. But it happened, so what do you do about it? We face the same thing today with the gospel. I have a buddy who's a missionary in Africa. He ministers to a polygamous tribe. This guy gets saved. He brings with him to church his five wives and all their kids, right? Triple the size of the church like that. He's like, wow, you're welcome. Come in. And the guy starts to study and to learn. He reads Genesis chapter one and reads 1 Timothy chapter three. And he goes, wait a second. God's design was one man, one woman, but I've got five. What do I do? Do I send these four ladies out with their kids? because I know the only job that they can get, and I don't want that for my wives, and I don't want that for my kids. And so the church rightly said, no, 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 you can't do that. What you do is you still do, you got to deal with this the way it is, but you teach your kids a new way, the better way. So we still deal with it. It's the same thing. God's dealing with these situations. So you have this situation, guy gets married, down the road, he gets married again. It's just describing what has happened. It's not God saying that's good. God's design is one man, one woman, one life. So this happens and then what, what happens is he says, if you get married again, you must continue to give her food, clothing, and her marital rights. You know what marital rights are? Sex. Okay, that's what it is. Get that right out there. You've got to be doing that. You cannot turn into a second-class citizen. You can't just shun her and just be like, oh, this is my new wife and I don't really care about you. Nope, you cannot do that. So let me ask you a couple questions. In polygamy, 
which gender gets the short end of the stick, typically? The girl, women, right? They get the short end of the stick. Who is God in this text defending? The girl, right? You cannot treat my daughters that way. In the land that I'm bringing you into, you cannot do that. You will not trade in and just shun a previous wife or a second wife. You cannot do that in my land. He is right here protecting the girl. You care for her, feed her, clothing, marital rights, right? Broadly, you take care of her is what God's saying. Right, so that's the first command. Really, God is saying, I want you to take care of the girl. So second command, Deuteronomy 24. This one's a little bit thicker, a little bit harder. Not that that one was easy, but... Verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, Then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance. Very thick text. There's a ton in here. Um, I just want to do two things, but I'll give you one bonus. The second part of this text where it says, hey, you can't get remarried, why is that in there? Here's why. Um, It's God saying this, no wife swapping. That's what he's saying. There's a culture that exists right now. It's a very, very highly religious culture. I won't bash them, but they have a law and a religious rule that says this. You can on Friday night divorce your wife and you can marry a second wife, a new wife, And then Saturday morning, you can divorce that second lady and then get remarried back to your first lady. Okay? So that happens today, right now. God says, no way. That's both, in this country, it's both legal and they consider it moral. God's saying, not in my land. None of that stuff is happening in my land. That's what God's saying right there. Okay, so, but there's two things I want you to know. Number one, when it comes to remarriage, What does this text assume? She's going to get remarried, right? There's no prohibition against it. The Old Testament, the law, the unbearable Acts chapter 15, we cannot do this law. That law has no prohibition against remarriage. It doesn't. In fact, it assumes, Deuteronomy 24, when she remarries, it's just assuming, yeah, she's going to get remarried, okay? Please keep that in mind. Please keep that in mind, number one. Number two, this word indecency. It's in verse one. If a man finds some indecency in his wife, then he divorces her, that kind of stuff. What does does this word indecency mean? It's used one time in the Old Testament, right here. 
whenever that happens with a word, it's very difficult to get kind of its, its range of meanings. Like usually you get the range of meaning from a word by how it's used in context. So you got Hebrew, a dead language, revived. What in the world does the word mean? Very hard. So after 1,400 years from the time it was written by Moses until the time of Jesus, here's what had happened in Israel. There was two major camps based on two rabbis who taught on this text. One rabbi, his name was Shammai. He said this, the word indecency means sexual immorality, adultery. That that's the only reason you can ever get divorced. That was camp number one. Camp number two was a guy named Hillel. And Hillel said this, no, indecency means anything that a husband does not like. And the Mishnah, which is a commentary from that time, actually listed out reasons why you could divorce. One of them was if your wife burns your food, right? (laughs) Or number two was if she stops looking pleasing to your eye, right? Nah, like that shiny object over there, I'm done with you, right? So Hillel was any reason at all, you get rid of her. Now, let me ask you a question. At the time of Jesus, which one of these do you think was most popular? Hillel. Hillel was most popular. It was no-fault divorce, male-dominated society, I can do whatever I want. So Jesus and his disciples and those that are around him are basing their understanding of marriage on Hillel. Like, man, you just do, we do what we want. If this woman is indecent, burns my toast, doesn't look the way I like her, your perm, hate it, divorce, right? Like that was where they were at. So that was the popular kind of thing. So that's where Jesus is wading into. So that's the Pharisees' perspective based on those two texts right there. All right, so let's go back. Now, one other point. When you look at Hillel, which one of the two laws is he ignoring? Exodus 21. Hey, you take care of her. You feed, clothe, marital rights. So he is ignoring, just I'm ignoring that text. I'm basing it on one word that nobody is sure what it means. That is a really terrible way to interpret the Bible. Okay, so back to Jesus, Matthew 19. So that's the controversy. That's the hot button issue. Some people, the majority were Hillel, very popular. And then the minority were over here with Shammai saying, no, no, conservative. Okay, so here's what Jesus says. Verse four. Have you not read? What did Jesus just say to Bible scholars? You're reading your Bible? (laughs) It's like, it's a little bit hot right there. Have you been reading your Bibles? Because he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and he said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What's Jesus's perspective? Does he go to the law? Where does he go? Page one, right? He goes page one. Genesis 1. I'm not going to the law after sin. Things have been fractured. I'm going to the original design of humanity. And really, he makes two points. He says, when you want to look at marriage, you got to get two points. Number one, what a human is. And number two, what the marriage is, right? So when he defines what a human is, he gives, I think, one of the most important texts in the Bible. He quotes Genesis 1, 26 and 27. That text says this, God has created everything, 
made all that we see, all the animals, all that kind of stuff. And then he stops and there's like this heavenly council where you hear, let us make man in our image. And God created them, male and female, he created they them. Okay? Just this fascinating little thing. Because you have God saying, let us. Who's the us there? Talking to angels? Angels don't create. So what you have there is you have, how many gods are there? How many creator gods are there? One. All right? So you've got one saying us. Why? Because inside of God, there is some kind of complexity. We call it the Trinity. So there's, there's unity, but there's complexity. So then God creates mankind. How many species of human are there? One. How many kinds of human are there? Two. Male and female. So it's as if God is saying, when he says, I'm going to create mankind in my image, he is saying there's going to be unity, but there's going to be this complexity or this um, uh, diversion or this diversity inside of that complexity. And that our job as humans, guess what it is? Image bear God. To be on earth and say, this is what God looks like. So that's why I believe the first command is this. Hey, I'm God. Don't make any images of me. Why would God say that? Because I already made an image and it's you. Don't create another image. You start looking like me in faithfulness, in love, in covenanting, in not giving up, in sticking to it, in all the things that I do. You image me because that's what you are. You're supposed to look just like me. So when the two types come together, guess what they do? They create more types, right? Just like God When he came together, had his counsel, they created more like him. You and I, man and woman, when we come together, we're supposed to create more humans. You shouldn't learn anything right there. That should be pretty simple. So it's this beautiful picture that mankind, our design is not sin and kicking people out of our houses. Our basic design is imaging God in his faithfulness, in his covenant keeping and all that, all right? So that's number one, that we are different than the rest of creation, right? We're not like goats. Praise God for that. That we covenant to each other and we keep that covenant and we walk that out in a way that's beautiful and right, okay? So that's point number one. Point number two is he says, here's what marriage is. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. He goes now Genesis 2 and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That the way that we image bear God the best is when two kinds come together, become one, and they image bear God the best. Males can't do it by themselves. Females can't do it by themselves. Together in marriage is when you see the best picture of God. That's what he's saying. That's the beginning. That's what this thing is supposed to look like. Not Deuteronomy 24, not Exodus 21. We go all the way back to pages one and two. So that's Jesus's perspective design, design. Okay. So now they come back. Verse seven. And they said to him, you got to get the wording down real good here. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Did Moses command them to get divorced? Is that what they're saying there? Absolutely. So over 1,400 years, they'd come to the point that if she displeases me, Moses commands me to kick her out of my house. I mean, how easy is that? (laughs) You burnt my toast. It's a command, out of my house. Don't like your hair. It's a command, out of my house, right? 
just, it's absolutely crazy at this point. And here's why that happens. It's when you stop reading the Bible and you start reading people who write about the Bible. That's what had happened. They stopped reading the Bible. If they just read the Bible, they'd say, no, actually, he's not commanded us to get divorced. That's some nutty dude's idea about what the Bible said. So that's where they've gotten. So here's what Jesus says real quickly. He comes back, verse eight, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed, very different, didn't command, he allowed you because of sin to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Your design is not this way. You're to be image bearers, covenant keepers, faithful. And I say, verse nine, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Okay? So, whose side does Jesus land on? Based on verse 9. Is he Hillel's side? Or is he Shammai's side? Is he only sexual sin breaks the covenant of marriage? Or anything you don't like breaks the covenant of marriage? It's Shammai, right? He goes conservative. Now, when he does that, which group of people, which gender is Jesus defending? Women. He's defending women, just like Exodus 21. He's defending women. You don't treat God's daughter like that. And what he's saying to the Pharisees is this. You got marriage wrong. Because you're reading post-Genesis 3, because you're reading sin into marriage, because you're doing that, you don't even understand what marriage is. You don't understand it. You think, Pharisees, that marriage is all about you being happy. That my wife is there to make me happy. And the moment she doesn't make me happy, I ditch her and go for another one that I think will make me happy. Doesn't that sound like marriage today? Because I think most people think marriage is there to make me happy. I say this quite frequently. The only people that think marriage is easy are engaged people, <laughs> right? And when you get into it, you're like, oh, man. And I deal with it all the time. And I, 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 Part of what I love is the first meeting when I do premarital counseling because it's kind of fun because I like, one of the questions I usually ask is, hey, why are you guys getting married? And I look for clues like, are they doing the happiness thing? And quite often they do. Like the lady will be like, oh, he is the first guy that really understands me. So I always, just say, I always say to the guy, bro, you do not understand her. Right now, just get that out of your mind. You trust me. It gets much more complex than this. And then she'll be like, and, and oh, he just talks to me all the time. Yeah, I feel like I can talk to her about everything. I say to the gal, that's going to stop too. There's going to be a time you're like, he never communicates to me. Why does he talk to me? Okay, trust me. It's going to get harder. <laughs> it's just classic. We got all of our stuff on the table. We're not going to have any issue. It's just going to be bliss. What I say to that couple is this. I say, okay, you're getting married on this date. Let's make an appointment to meet six months after that. And then let's talk. See if it's still bliss, right? I had one guy, and this is the most classic guy. I got together with him after he was married, and he said this, bro, she changed. <laughs> when that ring went on, she became her mom. I'm like, okay, now we can talk marriage, right? The Pharisees made a mistake. Marriage is about making me happy. And when she doesn't make me happy, I'm ditching it. Jesus says, no, marriage is about you imaging God. 
and keeping covenant. That's what marriage is about. And since you forgot that, you do not understand what marriage really is. It's about commitment, just like God commits to us. It's about love, just like God loves us. It's about pursuing brokenness, even like Jesus pursued us. It's about making peace, just like Jesus is the great peacemaker. That's what it's about, imaging God. You forgot that, okay? So he sides Shammai, the hard guy, goes against popular opinion, Hillel. Look at his disciples, verse 10. Remember, for generations they've been grown up on. Hillel is the way to do it. Listen to what they say. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. You mean if I can't just kick her out of my home when I want to, I'm not getting married. I mean, just, I just love that. It's just classic. There's so much culture into this thing. And I love what Jesus says. Oh, no, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait. I didn't tell you, and they lived happily ever after. Is that what Jesus says? No. He says, you're right. Some should not get married. And those that can receive this should receive this because it is not, and they lived happily ever after. It is, you've got to stick through difficult things, and rough corners are going to be chipped off of you, and she's going to do things that you don't like, and he's going to do things that you don't like, and you've got to say, did we covenant together for life or not? Okay? So Jesus does not back out with the marriage is hard thing. In fact, he says, yeah, Absolutely. Okay, so those are the texts that inform Christians on divorce and remarriage. So I want to make a couple points, and then I'm done. Number one, and I mentioned this already, the Old Testament never forbids a divorced person from remarrying. So you have the law, which we say, man, that's hard, that's cold, that's uh, ugh. The law never prohibits a divorced man or divorced woman from remarried. In fact, it actually assumes it's going to happen. Okay, that's number one. Number two, Jesus assumes after divorce, there's going to be remarriage, doesn't he? Look at verse nine. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, he doesn't then say, that's wrong. He doesn't then say, you should not get remarried. He just assumes the divorced party will get remarried. He then says, you don't have to. Some can receive this. That's verses 10 through 12. But he assumes the divorced person will get remarried. Why? Because Jesus wrote the Old Testament. It's not changing something here. It's just continuing on with, this is the design. We live in Genesis 3, though. Design is Genesis 1 and 2. That's what we aim for, but we have to be honest. We don't live in Genesis 2. We don't live in Eden we don't live where things are perfect. We don't live where there's no selfishness. We don't live where a man will withhold things from his wife, not giving the care and the food or the marital rights to his wife. We don't live in Eden anymore. We live where all that stuff takes place, okay? So Jesus assumes that there will be remarriage. And then you have this very sticky thing in verse 9, and it's a little complicated, and you're going to have to pay attention if you want to get it. It says this. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. What in the world is that? What does it mean to commit adultery in that way? Okay. There's a couple ways you can look at the Bible. You can define words in the Bible by culture, by Greek culture 2,000 years ago when it was written, Or you can define the words in the Bible by revelation. 
that the way God uses those words. I believe the way that you always interpret the Bible is you look at the way the Bible uses that word. If you go to the Old Testament, the Old Testament uses the word adultery not just to speak of sexual sin. The Old Testament uses it much more broadly, breaking of covenant. So adultery, God accuses Israel over and over of adultery. Did they literally like, obviously that can't happen. What is God saying there? You can read Jeremiah 5, 7. He says, you guys have gone and worshiped other idols. You have committed adultery against me. What is God saying there? He's saying, listen, we made a covenant in Exodus. And my number one thing was this. I'm your God, you're my people, and don't make any idols. And what they do? They made idols. So what they do? They broke a covenant. We covenanted. We covenanted to each other, and you have fractured and broken the covenant that we made to each other, and God calls that adultery. So it's a much broader word than we like to use it for. So to me, when Jesus is saying, listen, if you divorce your wife, marry another, you commit adultery, he's using it in the broader context that you've shattered that relationship. That's why that little phrase there is so important, except for sexual immorality. Why is that the exception? Because if, if there has been sexual immorality, the covenant has already been broken. The covenant to stay faithful for life, you've already broken it. So it's already broken, okay? That doesn't mean there can't be redemption, and I love to see redemption in marriages, all right? But the covenant that you made with your wife or with your husband, you've already broken it. But if there has not been sexual sin, then when there's remarriage, that's when the covenant is finally broken, okay? Does that make sense? It's a very kind of hard thing to get. But God makes the two, Genesis 1, become one. I think there is a moment in a wedding where God shows up and actually unites two hearts into one. And it's beautiful and it's brilliant. The Old Testament uses the word nefesh to describe us, our soul. That the nefesh, it's called dod. That the, it means the, the intermingling of your nefesh. That's what dod means. It's a word for love in the Old Testament. That what happens in the covenant of marriage is your essence, who you are, actually gets intermingled with the other person. It's brilliant and beautiful. That's why the longer people are married, the more they start to what? Look like each other. For some of us, it's brilliant. For others, my apologies. Why? Because your souls have been mixed together in marriage. And that's why Jesus says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So only when there's been sexual sin in a marriage is that covenant already broken. And if there's a divorce outside of sexual sin, then when there's remarriage, then the covenant is broken. That is the way I interpret that text. You don't have to if you don't want to. To me, that's what makes sense, okay? As a church, we take divorce very seriously. I tend to be a very competitive person by nature, and so when it comes to marriage and the fracture of marriage, I don't care what the cause of it was. I don't care at all. I fight for that marriage. I fight for it tooth and nail. You know why? Because divorce hurts. I liken divorce to amputation. If God truly makes the two one, the only way they become two again is, guess what? If you cut it. That's what it is. And so we take it seriously. It'd be like this. Who would go to a doctor with a splinter? And when you go up, your splinter's in, the hand, in your hand, and the doctor's like, wow, that's a bad splinter. We're going to have to amputate. 
what? What? Write the wrist. Is there some other option? Yeah, we could take out the elbow. Would you go back? No, you see, you're nuts. Yet how many people divorce for splinters? And my heart breaks for them because there will be amputation and there will be problems and there will be heartache. And I don't like it. I don't like kids to not grow up with dad and mom. I don't like the phantom feelings that are always going to exist there between two people because their souls have been intermingled. I don't like the holiday issues that come. I don't like any of that. So we fight and fight and fight and fight against divorce. But is there a point where it's Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 24? Yep. There's a point. There is a point. And know this. I tell this to divorce people. Every divorce has sin. It's that simple. Jesus says that you were divorced because of your hardness of heart. Every divorce has, has sin. It could be your personal sin that you sinned and caused the divorce, or it could be the fact that you were sinned against. But there's always sin in every divorce. And I tell people, you have to deal with that. You must deal with that sin or else. The people that have been sinned against, I have found to be the most bitter. They're often angry at God. They're angry at people. They're angry at their ex. There's just this anger in them because they've been sinned against and it's now dropped down into them and it's now bitterness and wrath and anger is coming out. I say, you got to take care of that. And I always say this, and I'll say it to you if you're divorced. God rushes to the repentant sinner. Do you know that? When Adam and Eve sin, who shows up? Instantly. God does. Because he loves Adam and loves Eve and says, I want to heal your heart. I want to cleanse you of that sin. I want to move you on. You have to know divorce is not the unforgivable sin. And repentance really works. Like it doesn't leave you a leper or an outcast or a second-class citizen like we've made it. No way. Then you're just saying repentance doesn't work. I say repentance works and redemption works and you can be moved forward. No doubt about it. And, and those that have sinned, you got to confess that. I blew it. I broke my marriage. I didn't do Exodus 21. I did worse. I blew it. And here's what I get to do. Here's what you get to do. We're called, you know what we're called? We're called the priesthood of believers. And there is something, the Catholic Church got it, but they went kind of south with it. But I still think there's a truth in it. That there's a power in one believer, one priest saying to another, your sins are forgiven. Have you ever had somebody actually say that to you? Someone you respected and admired just say, you know what? Your confession and your repentance, your sins are forgiven. I've seen people cry hearing those words because it's what we want. And sometimes you just need someone to tell you, hey, your sins are forgiven. You're not a depraved, leprous outcast. Your sins are forgiven. You are a child of Almighty God, and He rushes His grace to you. Romans 5.20, that where sin abounds, grace does abound much more. That's the message you got to get. Okay, so here's what I want to offer. If you're here, and maybe you've gone through a divorce, and your heart is broken, maybe you've been sinned against in some way, or maybe you've sinned, I want to offer you prayer. I'll be up here after worship. 
Elders will be up here. Titus 2 gals will be up here. Women's fellowship gals will be up here. Deacons will be up here. We'd love to pray for you. I know that might be a hard thing to do, but I think, and I found, sometimes we really need to hear from somebody, your sins are forgiven. God accepts you. God loves you. We just got to hear it. Got to hear those words. It's what Peter was told we could do. We could extend forgiveness to people. Not us forgiving them. It's just reminding people, hey, you are forgiven. And it can be powerful. So we'd love to pray for you. We'd love to give you that opportunity, okay? If you're married in here, hear the words of King Jesus. It's not Exodus 21. It's not Deuteronomy 24. It's Genesis 1 and 2. We are to image bear God, faithful, committed, kind, loving, meeting our needs, pursuing the broken, pursuing the hurt, being a peacemaker. That's what we do in our marriage. That's when it works beautifully and brilliantly and becomes heaven on earth. So, Father, I pray for us. I pray that I would allow your kingdom to rule my marriage. Not the culture of America. Not defining everything by the moment or by happiness, but defining by design. That you designed me to be an image bearer. That you designed my wife Charity to be an image bearer. And that together we image bear you. May you be king of the marriages of Edgewater. May we hear your words and may we obey them that we're going to image you correctly. That's our design. I pray for those in here who have hearts that have been crushed, been sinned against. Father, I pray that you would protect those hearts from the enemy who'd want to make them hard and angry and bitter. I pray that your grace would heal. Forgiveness would be felt. That you would sprinkle clean water on us and cleanse us and give us your Holy Spirit to empower us to be forgivers and forgetters. And we need you. I pray for those in here who have sinned in their marriage and are now reaping the whirlwind, I pray that you would let each one of those people know that you love them, that you died for them, that you live for them, and that even tough things can be redeemed. Yes, there's consequences. Yes, there's difficulty. But even in difficulty and consequences, they can feel your grace and may move forward in their walk. And they're not outcasts and they've not been cast away from you, but they're like prodigal sons that you will wrap up and love and throw a party for because you love them that much. May they know the extravagance of your grace, I pray. May we be those wherever we're at in life that are image bearers of God, shining out to this culture what life looks like under the rule of our King. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.